Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on today's show is John Reed, author of The Five Superpowers, Why We Lose Them and How We Get Them Back. There's a well of untapped potential inside everyone, just waiting to be unleashed. Everyone has superpowers when they're children. We tend to lose them as we grow up, but they're always there, right below the surface. John joins me today to discuss how to explore the innate leadership tool belt you forgot you had and reconnect with the leader you were born to be, the kind of leader and person who knows how to activate superpowers in themselves and everyone around them. So John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your book? I'd be happy to, Maureen, thank you. So I am the youngest of five, which is interesting. We'll get to that later, but I'm the youngest of five. I went to the University of Maryland where I got a marketing degree, but I ended up working for a chemical company early on in my career, which is also relevant, as you'll see, because I never had a chemistry course in my life. And so there I am working for a chemical company. Years later, I left that industry to work in the training development industry because I had a passion that people wanted to get better and could get better if the training was better. And what I found was an industry that, for the most part, well-intended, but people acted as if they had the answer versus an answer. So they would approach the learner as sort of the right, wrong, we have the answer. So when I started my company, we have a, well, a couple of things we believe. Context is king. There's wisdom in the room. And we believe we have an answer, not the answer. And so that's much more inviting. And it gets at trying to bring people along right in their own journey. In that journey, we teach curiosity. And for a long time, I would tell people it's a lost superpower. That as kids, we were wildly curious and then something happens to us. And so when we taught coaching or taught sales, Maureen, we would get at curiosity for the last 13 years. And in that period, it dawned on me that there must be five lost superpowers. And don't ask me how I came up with five. I just announced to myself in my own head that there's probably five. <laughs> I think somebody asked me, well, how many are there? I'm like, well, five, there's probably five. I have some collaborators in the book, as you know, Karina Chase, Lene Steinhagen, Andrew Reed my son. And we got together and sort of said, okay, what are the five? And we had that debate and then we divided and conquered. But we did come up with five lost superpowers that we think provide an answer to help people become the better version of themselves that they aspire to be. You talk about them being lost. How do we lose them? The good news, it's not like they're lost forever. It's like losing your car keys and where did I put them and then retracing your steps. So it's a little bit like that kind of loss. It's not lost for good. I mean, it's everything. It's all the things that we know of. It's the education system that rewards answers, that rewards conformity for all the right reasons. I mean, in a way, not for all the right reasons, but there's a reason why the education system is set up. Let's get the right answers out of them. Let's have people behave, conform. Let's get that going. It's our parents, our well-intended parents who start to ask leading questions, you know, are you sure you want to go out with those kids? Don't you think you should be doing your homework? So we, we see a lot of bad modeling of curiosity, for example. Authenticity, of course, gets hit. I'm, I'm going through the five superpowers, but that gets hit with this conformity thing. Compassion has risk, and we're kind of socialized that God helps those who help themselves. I mean, and we have all these phrases that, you know, keep us at a distance. Curiosity killed the cat. So we're kind of told over and over again that these things are problematic as we become adults and adults put away childish things. I mean, that's, that's another phrase, right? <laughs> We're just filled with it. The background noise says adult is different than childhood. Adult is more serious. It's more conforming. 
it's less vulnerable, it's more knowing and less learning. I mean, it's just everything stacked against us. You know, it's interesting as you talk about this, and I'm thinking about the leadership maturity model. We need to go through the losing and then the regaining because there is some amount of conformity that if I go running around naked down the street, I don't get to keep my job. (laughs) And I say that to say there are extremes that we can illuminate a conversation with, not that I've tested that theory, (laughs) but all of this is part of the maturing process to learn to conform, to learn the right amount of curiosity, to kind of balance Because we do want kids to follow the rules, which means I don't play in the street. Right. When cars are coming. Some of this is to keep us alive. Right. And then there's bring it back in. When I learn how fast cars go, then I, as an adult, I, I can play in the street. I may not choose to. Right. But at least if I do, I will be less likely to end up dead. By the way, what you're talking about is what fascinates me, separate from the book, but just as a learning company. I'm always attracted to what is the tension here? I don't think that's explored enough in training. You know, most participants are told, be this way, be that way, be this way, be that way. But there's tensions, there's trade-offs. Be vulnerable. Well, hold on. All the time, every time? (laughs) You know, be curious all the time. See, that's what you're saying. Like, okay, what is the right balance of this? For the most part, what we find when we do those activities, people are out of balance. They know they're not vulnerable enough. They know they're not curious enough. They know they're not their authentic selves. So it's not about running around the street being naked. They tend to be on the other extreme where they're trying to be a replica of somebody else. And therefore their well-being, the stress levels, their happiness levels, all these things are at risk because they're just not being themselves. This is so fascinating because of my lens into leadership that looks at, at these adult maturity models. And we do go from the wonderful, young, curious, excited person to the one who has to sit in class and conform. And for all the reasons we've talked about basic safety, as well as the way our education system is constructed, that kids sit in a row and they face forward and they learn. So I'm not criticizing at all, but all of that stuff gets compressed. And then as adults, moving beyond the social convention where the rules say don't do to learning how to add it back in I love the idea of the tensions that we're navigating and not all adults move into that level of maturity where they add them back. Right. I think we need to invite that. It's unfair to blame society for all because, you know, we're making conscious choices and we're emotional beings who think there is this love of being right. It's very human and innate and all of it. You know, I want to be right and I want to be confident and I want to be certain. I have all these wants, these emotional needs. And unless I am conscious enough and work hard enough to go, okay, those are just emotional drivers, but there's a better version of me. I can let some of that go. So that's not society's fault. That's our individual choice that we make. Do I seek others' perspective or do I just advocate my own perspective ad nauseum? Do I watch a certain television station news because that makes me feel smart and good about myself? Or do I watch something that makes me not feel so good about myself and challenges my thinking? That's an individual choice leaders can make, anybody can make. And it's very seductive, obviously, to make the choice where we get to feel smart and right. John, let's go back and talk about delineate the five superpowers. I realized I got so excited about the tensions 
I lost the foundation of our conversation. <laughs> That's okay. So the five that we came up with, and it was a struggle. And every time we would talk about what are the five, it would change. Like, what are the five again? What are... But curiosity was always one, obviously. That's where we started. Then we had resilience, which there's some debate about. Authenticity, which there's really no debate about. Compassion, which I really like a lot, which I can explain to you later why I like it. And then uh, playfulness, which became the last one. And playfulness was intriguing because there's not a lot about it and people could have a natural reaction. Do we really want leaders to be playful? And the answer is yes. But playful ends up also being a container for imagination, innovation, and a bunch of other things. And it's distinct from curiosity in its own way. So those are the five. As you say that, I'm kind of testing against our developmental models again. And those do resonate as things in the post-conventional or more mature leadership realm. And it's interesting playfulness because we don't talk about that in the standard leadership literature. But in our model, we talk about things like having a sense of humor. Yes. It's amazing what challenge you can diffuse with a compassionate sense of humor, not a caustic, I'm going to shut you down. No, I'm a big self-effacing guy. So as a leader, I've always been, the joke should be about me. I shanked that, you know, also when my colleague, Lene, who wrote one chapter, she come out of a session where she delivered training and she'll be, wow, I shanked that. And, you know, we would all laugh and that's just being vulnerable, but being funny and being lighthearted, right? And being authentic. I mean, it's all kind of there, self-aware and it's okay. Not taking oneself so seriously as to not be able to make a joke about oneself. Which again comes online as we have had a, a certain amount of success and everything we do is into performance. Yes. Which connects to your authenticity as well. If I've got to be on stage every minute of the day, Ugh. one, I'm exhausted. But two, I can't be authentic because authentically, I think I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a mask we put on. We have these different tool belts, like you mentioned, mask is one of them, you know, but it's this idea of not being our best true self. And it, it is exhausting, right? If you can't be yourself. Why do you call them superpowers? I think of the Marvel comic realm when I think of superpowers. What happened with this book was I wrote a book about selling, which is a passion of mine. And then during that process, curiosity and five lost superpowers came in mind. And then my team wanted to write a graphic novel. You know, they were all like, let's write a graphic novel. I'm like, oh. Really? I'm a boomer. So I was like, really? Do people read those? <laughs> so I, I actually interviewed a couple of people at one of my clients, it's Ernst & Young. And I asked this group and they said, yeah, they wouldn't read a graphic novel, you know. But I still like the idea of this cartoon image, right? So we do have this cartoon panel that runs throughout the book, which is kind of fun. They are superpowers because when we exhibit them, when we do that, we can achieve so much more than we can when we don't achieve them. So it's the idea of being you know, a super version of ourselves. So I, I like the use of the word superpower here. It's also innate characteristics. They're not skills that I learn like doing a spreadsheet. <laughs> no, no, they're not. And so to your point, we each have them. Yes. I'm a big research person. So I like to be valid with everything we say, which is a hard thing to do these days because you have all these research Stanford prison experiment. I mean, you go on and on and then you read the research and are they true? Is it not true? Did it happen? Did it not happen? You get lost in the sauce sometimes around what do we really know, right? Do we really know this or is this just a bad scientific study that's been, that's been talked about and talked about and talked about? For the most part, we were able to validate them. 
I think what's important to know is if you look at childhood literature and stuff, I mean, coming from one loving, stable caregiver is kind of foundational. That if you don't have that foundation, the five are more unlikely. So if you weren't born into that and didn't have that, you may not have had these superpowers when you were young. There's also a debate about the autism spectrum, whether you can be compassionate or empathy. I mean, there's research all over the place. And they can learn it, but it may not be innate because the the challenge of picking up social cues. So, you know, with, with those caveats, though, we felt comfortable saying, yeah, these are by and large innate in most children. We're not born blank slates. Curiosity is the easiest one to validate because we come into the world, welcome to earth, and we're just noticing, 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 and taking all this data in, and we're wildly curious. There's a lot of data that supports that. At this point, let's run through the five because my guess is that you have a wealth of detail about what each one is and why it is the way it is. And a word like compassion or authenticity may mean different things to different listeners. Where do you want to start? Curiosity? Let's start with curiosity. That was your first and favorite, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> well, like, and again, I think it's because I was hired by Dow Chemical out of college, never had a chemistry course in my life. And so I would go out and ask questions that my peers did not ask. My peers were chemical engineers. And so they would not ask like, what does that do? What does that do? What does that do? Because they thought either they knew it already or they were supposed to know it. So they were limiting their curiosity to protect sort of a self-image. I, on the other hand, had no self-image to protect because I didn't know <laughs> what this stuff was. And what I did know was that people like to talk about themselves. And they like to talk about what they do. And so I was very successful in selling chemicals. I didn't have a real passion around it, ultimately. But the curiosity, that's where I said there's something about asking questions, being really curious. The other thing that hit me, well, another quick story, but it's just quick. Romeo and Juliet, eighth grade. We all had to do it. We had to write a paper about the turning point. And I think Tybalt kills Mercutio, if I have this right. And so everybody in the class wrote about Tybalt's belligerence. Tybalt was antagonistic. Except for this one kid wrote Tybalt's love of family. And I was blown away. I was like, what? We read the same thing. We had the same data and you have a completely different perspective. And that's where I got excited about different perspectives. Asking good questions because I don't know. And that's how you learn. And the reality that there's all these different perspectives have always been foundational to me. And then I found out that they're not necessarily foundation to other people. You know, they don't know how to ask good questions. They're not perspective seeking as much as they could be. They stop exploring because they want to exploit what they know versus continue to learn. And again, all the things we've talked about, the internet, great article, Google makes us dumber because you don't even have to write a good question and they give you the answer. And it's always there. And we're convinced we know stuff we don't know because, you know, I knew that. Who's the star of must love dogs? And then we look it up. We go, yeah, I knew that. No, you didn't. You just learned it. <laughs> But we don't want to say, oh, look what I learned. We want to say, look what I knew, because we want to know, right? We want to know that we're smart. So curiosity is foundational. The rest of them, yeah, we all debated whether it was foundational to the rest, but we were a lot of passion around curiosity being the secret sauce that most of us can, you know, learn more from about ourselves, about the universe we're in, to the benefit of everyone. When you talk about curiosity, and I keep, as I'm listening, going back to this developmental model one of the earliest stages we see in the business arena, so not every place, is the level called expert or skill-centric, where my sense of myself in the world is I'm good because I know my thing right. and I'm good at my thing. And at that level, 
until I am secure enough in my thing, curiosity throws me into this, I don't know stuff space. Yeah. And that feels dangerous. Right. So it seems like I've got to get through this bit of developmental maturity and then curiosity can come back online. And to your point, even as a young person, exploring different perspectives makes me richer, not poorer. Yes. But at this one stage, it's disorienting. Yes. And it was less disorienting for a marketing major from the University of Maryland because it was not, not like this great wealth of expertise. It's I think it's harder for people that are technically brilliant. I think they have a harder I do. I think they have a harder road to hoe here. I'm actually an economic and a marketing major, and this is going to be self-serving, but economics was the major where they said that people were the most curious because economics itself, there's no right, you know, macro, micro, all the factors, all the trends. And there was this theory that that's where curiosity was sparked. And some of the more degreed people with technical degrees were less curious because of the things you're talking about. It starts to define who they are. Interesting, because I was an economics major. So you've just maybe explained some of my... <laughs> dysfunction in the world. I have one great story. There was this chemical and I was, I do executive coaching. I was coaching this guy. He was 35 years old and he was the youngest plant manager at this company. And he was a graduate from Georgia tech and he was an engineer. And, you know, he talked to me about his degrees and everything. And I said, uh, so what's your relationship with your manager? He says, well, I don't talk to him much. I said, what is your manager like? How can he help you? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how can he support you? He goes, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I go, well, your manager likes to coach. And so I think he could help you with some of your personnel issues. And his reaction to that was, wow, I'm really upset with myself. I said, why are you upset with yourself? He goes, because you knew something that I didn't know. And I said, well, there's your problem. Learn something. And you could say, look what I just learned. And that could be joyful. But in your world frame, your worldview, learning means you're not competent. Learning something new at you, 35 years old. Can you imagine 35 and thinking you know it all? Being bounded by that? Or that you should know it all. Yeah. That's the frame. Let's go from there to authenticity, because that's the, I can't own that I don't know stuff. There's a quote that a um, friend of mine uses. He talks about the gift of going second. He goes, I give the gift of going second. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm authentic first. And that allows the other person to be authentic. So I'm vulnerable first. And that allows that. So they, they have a gift because they get to go second. They don't have to be the first one to be vulnerable, the first one to be authentic. I think you've talked about the fact that we put on this mask, we grow up, we conform, we want to fit in, unlike children who will say anything and ask anything and show you anything and, you know, just wide open, we cut that stuff off. There's a lot of research that people that feel authentic have higher levels of well-being, less stress, you know, they're comfortable. It's all comfortable in your own skin as you show up. You know, authenticity is, is a tough thing to teach grownups, I think. It comes with confidence. It might be the one that comes the most along with maturity in a way that with age, you finally realize, you know, I'm unique. This is me. This is who I am. I think that one of the challenges with authenticity is most adults haven't thought about how they want to be perceived. You know, who are they really? How do I want to be perceived? I'm still shocked when I, we did this activity, like write down three words about how you want to be perceived by others. And people are in their forties and they haven't even thought about it. Is this the first time you've ever thought about how you want to be perceived? <laughs> And they said, yeah. And I said, so right now you're just leaving it to chance. You were showing up hoping to, but you weren't owning that. You weren't conscious about it. You weren't conscious about it, but we all have the masks that you've said. Yeah. So we are subconsciously managing it. Yes. Yes. And so 
a lot of this is just try small things, unleash yourself. I mean, a lot of this is just being mindful in the moment. There's no magic answer around authenticity. It's hard work, I think. Curiosity, you can learn a skill about how to ask better questions, right? That's You can teach a skill around that one particularly. Even resilience, you can teach some things. I think authenticity might be hardest to teach someone beyond the concept that there's a better version of you and you'll be much more at peace. Because we're in a world right now where some people would say authenticity means I get to share anything that comes in my head, no matter how it hurts you. Yes. So you've also used compassion, which I assume means you don't go around yelling mean comments at people who look different than you do. Yes. I'm a big fan, by the way, of Marshall Goldsmith's What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I think it's number 20, The Incredible Need to Be Me. And, you know, sort of articulating our faults as virtues, you know, with people, adults all the time. There's a better version of you. I can tend to interrupt people. Now, I could walk around and say, well, that's me, John Reed. I interrupt. <laughs> Look at me. Aren't I fun? Don't I love me? Did I just interrupt? But at some point, you got to go, there's probably a version of me that's still me, still authentically me, but doesn't interrupt. But the idea is we tie these faults as, well, that's us. And then we fall in love with this faulty human that is us, rather than say there's a better version of us. Compassion, I love because, again, I think just because the way I'm wired, I always get very suspicious you know, anybody who says they have the answer. So, you know, we live in an industry where it's grit and then it's purpose and then it's empathy. And then it's like, this is the answer of the day. And everybody and they have a cult following and they write a book and then they have a training company and we're all going to learn. And I just think it's all hype and I don't think it's helpful. And I, I don't think there's one answer. I don't think any, I think it's a combination. That's where we have five. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not just one. The empathy industry got me a little by the edge because I'm a cancer survivor. I didn't want actually empathy. I wanted sympathy. And Brene Brown, of course, she makes fun of sympathy. I like Brene Brown, vulnerability, brilliant. I'm not saying I'm anywhere near Brene Brown's level, but I'm saying she has a thing where she kind of makes sympathy look bad. But I got to tell you, I didn't want people saying, oh, I know what it must feel like to have cancer five times. No, I wanted some good old, well, it's hard. And what I really wanted was compassion. Do something. Take me out. Uh, help my wife. Something, right? So compassion is action. Empathy is, I, I don't know. I just, I've always been, a, I still have this debate internally. It's a good thing by and large, but I think it, it's hard to pull off because we're putting ourselves in the other person's shoes and we're acting as if we're them. And I think that's such a hard lift. And I think it's easy to make it about us. I think compassion clearly makes it about them because we have to take action and we're taking action for them. And I'm okay with sympathy because sometimes people just need a little sympathetic ear. Mm -hmm. And empathy is okay, I guess. But I think it can be too performative. In other words, I can gush about, oh, whatever the issue of the day is and be empathetic to your situation and post things and do things. But am I really doing anything besides making myself feel like I'm doing something? I don't know. We debate this internally all the time. I'm a big fan of compassion. When it came out and then I read the research and the fact that adults are doing this calculation, the risk of taking action, right? This is the bystander effect and all that. Do I take action? What's the personal risk to me? So compassion is a powerful superpower when we can grab a hold of it. As you're talking, the triad of empathy, sympathy, and compassion and it does seem like compassion is the more powerful. Yes. And, and pity is like, pity is not good. Pity is, you know, pity and sympathy are different. So I, we don't talk about pity at all. <laughs> but 
you know, some gold sympathy every now and then is not bad. <laughs> There's an author, Cindy Wigglesworth, who talks about love and she defines it as a bird with two wings. It's compassion and wisdom together. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? Because we don't talk about, I love you at work. That's still a little. Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But to show compassion mirrored with wisdom. So I know when and how to apply compassion. And so much of it's just being present and being mindful and just being aware and like, take off. What are you doing? That happened? Go. Being human in that moment to the other person's needs. And I'll figure this out. And there's so many great opportunities to be compassionate. <laughs> there's all missed opportunities for leaders to be compassionate and to recognize. Give us a story about compassion. Is there something, an example that resonates with you, maybe during your cancer journey where someone demonstrated compassion? Interestingly enough, when I was had cancer, I had two coworkers who had cancer and both of them end up passing away, wow. different types of cancer. And one was a mother of four. She was a, a salesperson. And I was a salesperson, but I would go visit her, which is action. And I would talk to her about cancer. And she would say, you're the only person who talks to me as if I have cancer. Everybody else would avoid it, right? And my experience when I had cancer was, you know, some people can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So they just don't talk to you. Some people don't know what to say. And then there's a small population who are okay leaning into the conversation about life and death and what is it like. A friend who's, he's now passed, but he asked me, what's the upside of having cancer? Hmm. Which I thought was, wow, what a gutsy question to ask somebody, but what a great conversation to have. So it was a gift, right? Mm -hmm. Treating me as if I was alive and I am treating me as if there might be a lesson here for me and for him. When we talk about compassion, it's not like they built me a shed in my backyard for my lawn tools. I mean, just taking the action to come over and have a conversation going out of their way mm-hmm. to the humanity. So a lot of it's just listening, asking, you know, there's Woody Allen's line with 90% of life is just showing up. So there is this showing up aspect to it. My wife embodies it because in the Catholic faith, they have those seven escape me now, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. They're all good stuff, whether you're religious or not religious. Like, oh, that's a pretty good list of stuff you should do. <laughs> that, that would... Probably be a good thing to do and you feel good about it. The cool thing about compassion, which is terrible, but it's just my nature, is you feel good about yourself when you do it. So what a bonus. It's just like recognition, you know, when you recognize somebody else and you feel good about recognizing them and they feel good about being recognized. So why wouldn't we do this a lot? Because this is a classic win-win. Now, it's, that's not why you should recognize people, but it's not a bad side benefit to recognizing people. <laughs> Am I right, Maureen? Yeah, I'm just thinking of how often expressing gratitude, expressing praise. There are so many things. I got a note from a colleague. It was one of my first interviews. She was a partner. I was with Accenture. And then years later, I asked if I could interview her. And she sent me a handwritten card that said she was proud of me. And that was so... The last time I think anyone told me they were proud of me was my parents when I was a kid. And it was so meaningful. And now I say it to people all the time. Yeah. Because those are words that struck me as way underused. Now, I don't just, you know, run around saying it to my neighbors because they walk their dog or something. (laughs) But but it's... (laughs) 
there are things we can do that deeply connect with folks that they are aware. In the book, there's this thing about the compassion success paradox, the fact that the more successful we become, sometimes we can become less compassionate. You know, I got mine, you should get yours. If you're not successful, it's because something you did, something you are. It's clearly, you know, the us versus them. People that are that are white, males, 60 years old, I give great grace to, you know, circumstances. But people that are them, that are different looking than me, it's, this is not me, using me as a foil here. But it's easy, you know, they get what they deserve. That's what they're like. It's easy to fall into these traps. The us-them trap reduces compassion. The success trap can reduce compassion. I worked hard. You know, all this story we tell ourselves, which mm-hmm. erodes our humanity. Yeah, mine is the opposite. I'm lucky to be alive. I did so many stupid things. I it just... <laughs> all right, that, is that a separate show? Like, where I, can I interview you for that show and you talk about all the stupid things you did? Dan's in. <laughs> Nobody would ever listen to me as a credible human being again. Like by the time you get to a certain age, you've just done stuff. Oh, stupid stuff. Yeah, really stupid stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And you've learned from stupid stuff, though. You learn from everything if you're paying attention. I'm still alive, so I've learned from stupid stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to me today. You'd be. So this is good. Our fifth superpower, playfulness, right? So you were playful, it sounds like. <laughs> When you were younger, is that fair to say? Uh, I was playful. I also drank too much. Oh. You know, we we try to prove ourselves. And so all of the ridiculous things of thinking I'm invincible and, you know, walking around Harlem when the cab says I won't drive there because it's unsafe. I got out and said, OK, I'll walk. I mean, that's that's dumb. Yeah, that's not that's not a superpower. <laughs> I wasn't going to be controlled by circumstance. I was going to do what I was going to do, prove I could. And fortunately, that day that I did that, you know, Grace was with me and I lived to be here. Other people would have done the same things and are not here. Right. All right. Where do we go from there, Maureen? (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to the more playful side, not the lucky to be alive side, because playfulness is such a beautiful quality. It is. And it's a lighthearted, a light spirit. Again, it begets other playful people. It, It helps with imagination and creativity and all these things we want. Innovation. We When we're more playful, when we're less constricted, we're going to come up with better ideas. I think the journey of playfulness in the book is kind of fun because I noticed this with my kids, you know, Legos, I'm old enough to know when Legos was just a bunch of stuff you did and you put together. Now, of course, they're kits, you know, you're going to build something and the pictures on the box and you got to make it exactly like the one on the box. And wow, that's not good. (laughs) I mean, if we want to raise a bunch of five-year-old manufacturers, there's probably a joke here, which I won't say. They have all these educational tools, right? Everything's outcome-based. Everything is sort of, you know, we're going to teach them this, we're going to teach them that, they're going to learn this. You watch cartoons. It's just constant. What's the lesson? What's the lesson? I mean, there's a cartoon now that's great. It's it's not great, but it's it's Grizzy and the Lemmings. It's a cartoon that basically made by these, uh, I think it's either Canadians or French. Maybe it's French. But it's just silly. It's just the lemmings annoy the grizzly and he annoys them and terrible things ensue. And it's, it's Tom and Jerry. But thank God, because everything else I watch is like this moral lesson. that <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, my God, can we just like have fun and just, you know, not have a lesson being driven <laughs> through everything at every age? So playfulness also came about as a superpower because if you look at the 9-11 report, 
It's a great report about what happened 9-11, and it starts with, it's a failure of imagination, that we lost the ability to imagine that this is what the terrorists would do. And time and again, Pearl Harbor, you know, again, it was like lack of imagination. We didn't think creatively enough. We didn't think about what would we do if we were them, and this was our situation. We were constrained by our own limitations. I think they hired Hollywood directors and stuff, and they got all these people now involved in these kind of things and getting other voices in the room to be creative. So playfulness is clearly one that begets creativity and innovation. And so we want to harness that. Now, brainstorming is fun. There's a great thing in the book, American Brainstorming Association. And yes, there is one, you know, or some group like that. You know, they say, it's not just this, it's getting people together. And, and they end the act like it's hard work. I'm like, wow, way to suck all the joy out of creativity. <laughs> I mean, this is what we do. It's what we do. We're like, look, we got some hard work to do. Let's get some ideas going. Like, oh, versus, you know what? Let's act like we just showed up to work for this company for the first time. We don't know what this company does, but we've been able to just fly around for the last 30 days looking at things and write down what you would change. Just anything, everything. Let's have at it, right? But we don't do it that way. We have structure. We have ground rules. God forbid we don't have ground rules. Can't be created without rules. And we all know that. It's just like the adults have taken over the creativity asylum. Picasso's got that great quote. It took me five years to learn to paint as Raphael. And then the rest of my life to paint like a child, whatever that quote is. I'm misquoting Picasso, but it's a great quote. Like I could do the master work, but the creative work, I'm still trying to paint like a child paints. You know, as you talk about imagination, I want to go back to that. And I think of the John Lennon song. Imagine, imagine what's possible in the world, right? Whether you're imagined as no heaven or no hell or no war or whatever for each of us. And we did, my partner and I, Mike, would walk to breakfast on Sunday morning. And that was every Sunday morning we would do the imagine exercise. Wow. And it would be a kind of, what do you want to imagine? And it was every place from where do you want to go on vacation to what do you want our lives to look like in 10 years? to what impact you want to make in the world, to just, you know, kind of pick something. Because we did it so frequently, you can't reimagine your future every weekend. Because that's... <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> pain in the neck. We just booked a vacation yesterday that was one of those imagines. And it just keeps us stretching our boundaries for what's all of the productive things, but also what's fun in life. You know, we work hard. We do work hard. Right. And so what else is there? And back to the playful, what would make it fun to get up in the morning? Yes. Beyond that we have a purposeful life, which we do, but it doesn't have to be grueling and purposeful. It can be fun and purposeful. Yes. Not everything is purposeful, right? Not everything has to be filled with purpose, but yeah, there is a part of you that needs that need, right? Some part of my life, there's purpose that gives me meaning that I like to do. I think it's being clear about that and finding time to do that. Oh, I love gardening, but that's not what the point I'm going to make. I do love thinking about adults and how do you get them to see these things. And so designing learning is a passion. I just get excited. Like, how could we get them to learn this? So I'll give you a quick example. We'll ask people how trustworthy they are and they'll say they're trustworthy and how salespeople particularly, you know, how good are your relationship building? And they're like, oh, great at relationship building. That's, that's the thing I'm great at. And so I give them a quick scenario that, hey, you're meeting with a customer. They agreed to an hour meeting. You've only got 30 minutes. Oh, the customer says at the beginning, I only have 30 minutes. I want to see my daughter's soccer game. What do you say next? 
90 out of 100 salespeople say, okay, how do we use the 30 minutes? How should I use the time? What's the best use of time? Only 10% of people ask about the daughter soccer game. Now, these are self-professed people who say that they're great at building relationships, yet they miss report cues all the time. So that activity then becomes a linchpin to say, look, adult who thinks they're good at something, <laughs> you're not. And that's okay. Embrace that you're not and then get better at it versus keep telling yourself a story that's not true. So I love thinking about all these five and how would you get somebody to see their underlying belief system and what that's causing, their mindset and what's that causing. But I think that's where real growth can come from if you can meet them there first, have them make choices and see what those choices look like and what they could look like. I'm being linear at this moment. We haven't talked about resilience yet. Okay. And we're talking about how to build it. Resilience is the one where there's a lot of debate, whether kids have it, don't have it. Is it something that we're telling ourselves a story that they have it because we want to believe they're tough and they can put up with all of our nonsense or they really have it. So we still articulate that they do have it. The way you get it back as an adult and resilience is the ability to bounce back, right? The ability to survive and thrive. Locus of control is a big thing, focusing on those things that you can control and being you know, serious about that. And then your network. Do you hang around people who lift you up or take you down? I think Seligman from Penn has the best work on this around resilience. It can be taught. One of the things he talks about is explanatory styles. Am I a victim? Is that how I view things? Or am I in control of these things? And is this permanent or is it temporary? What is that self-defeating narration that's going on in my head? And how do I reframe that? The good news about resilience is, like curiosity, you can work on some skills to improve your resilience. The thing you're pointing to on Seligman, the mindfulness piece, yeah. it's interesting that it has become so popular in our culture. Interesting to me in a very positive way, yeah. because I'm a long-term meditator and some of those things. And how we manage our thinking fundamentally changes our experiences in the world. Sure, right? How we process. And it all happens inside of our head, right? We can talk our way in or out of things. Is mindfulness is interesting, I think because I had cancer, I'm always present. You know, there, there was this big thing about being present. Like, where else would I be? I'm kind of present. <laughs> it didn't dawn on me to be in the past or the future. So I, I think one of the benefits of cancer was I became even more present. So that that's easy for me to do. I think the self-defeating thoughts and all that stuff, you need to work on always, right? You need to hear them when they come. You need to notice them when they come and you need to let them go. Well, there's a physical care, there's emotion. So this is tying to the compassion yeah. and the empathy, and there is the who we're around. Sure. So that package, we break it into four different people, break it into different numbers of components. I just got an alert on my phone about yoga. I'm now doing yoga. <laughs> I think it takes the joy out of it. That's the word alert. <laughs> Like you get alert when your house is on fire, but okay, that's a good alert. <laughs> but it should be like, uh, I got to notice, not an alert, notice that yoga. I'm not sure, frankly, why I'm getting this notice. <laughs> I think it's an attempt to sell me an app, but we go to in-person yoga classes. I love them. They're hard. It's not like I love them because I'm eating cake and drinking wine, but I love them because it helps me be better cognitively, physically, emotionally, all of that. Yeah. 
and we all have to find that for us, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is when we think that that is the prescription for everyone. Oh yeah. Like if you do yoga, you'll be great like me. It's like, you know, stop that. Please don't say that to somebody for God's sake. No. <laughs> no. And hopefully I didn't say that. No, you didn't. No, you didn't say that. But that's what happens in our business, right? Somebody has this epiphany. They think they've discovered oxygen. They want to tell everybody about oxygen because oxygen's good for me. And you're going to love oxygen. And, you know, maybe I need nitrogen. Maybe I'm a, I'm a different plant than you. We're all unique. And for me to grow, it looks different. I love you and your oxygen, but can you back it down a little and maybe find out what I'm about before you prescribe? So I, I think that's, that's a metaphor I just came up with. It kind of works. What do you think? <laughs> I know my lens is this leadership maturity thing. One of the things that happens at the later stages is we always inquire before prescribing. Yes. If you're good at it, right? If you're a great leader, you're always, what don't I know? Well, I go to a physician and I walk in and they don't say, oh, you need something. They usually test me first. Yes. Even if they can tell by the way I look when I walk in. (laughs) This lady's had too much hot yoga. You know what's going on here. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of testing. She's sweating. She's out of breath. Hot yoga. (laughs) Yeah. So to your point that there is something just in the maturity that says, of course, you're different than I am. And that maturity is not, not everyone has it consistently. No, no. I think it's one of the harder things for adults to do is to see with new eyes, to see that there's a different perspective. I mean, the ladder of inference was a life-changing model. The fact that we're inferential beings, we make assumptions, we run up the ladder and we think what we believe is the truth. It's our truth, right? But other people have their own ladders. And so finding other ladders is more interesting than just keep advocating for my own and looking for my own. But confirmation bias, we're kind of wired that way. So it's really hard for us not to accept that we could could be completely wrong about this. We don't know what we're talking about here. Uh, We don't have all the data yet because we had enough data to make this conclusion and this belief and we just want to scream at people and we're we're half-baked. We don't even know we're half-baked. So it's hard. You know, we talk about leadership as taking on the mind of the scientist. And to your point, it yes. and I hadn't thought about this before, but it it makes it okay to be wrong. It makes it okay to admit my bias. Yes. Because as a good scientist, I want to make things better. I don't need to be right. I need to be improving things. You seek disconfirming data. Mm-hmm. So Miller Lite was going to make Miller Lite. And when they make Miller Lite, they thought, of course, that who's going to drink Miller Lite? Women. And if they had made it for women and they had advertised it just to women, they would have sold Miller Lite and they would have said, look how right we are. We're so smart. We knew women would drink it and look, they're drinking it. But fortunately, there were people there that said, I think men could drink it. And why don't we market it to men? Because men were at that time far bigger beer drinkers than women. And it worked. But they had to be open to the idea that they were wrong and they had to test their their assumption. So you're right. It's all about disconfirming data. It's all about if you have a strong opinion as a leader, I tend to put it out early. It's art and science. But somebody, look, let me just be clear. Here's my belief. Here's what I think. But I'm willing to be wrong. So let's have that conversation. And if I've got enough trust in the organization, then they're going to tell me I'm wrong and what they believe. But if I really feel strongly about it, it's almost impossible not to get it out for me anyway and keep it to later. Because then people can feel like, well, if you feel that strong about it, why didn't you say that at the beginning or what's really going on here? So if I have a strong point of view, I'll get it out early. If I have a middle point of view, 
I mean, I always have a point of view. We're humans, right? We're going to have a point of view. <laughs> if I'm a minimalist, I've got a point of view here, but I don't think I'm right. I don't know if I'm right yet, so let's talk about it. But I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm just a human being with a point of view. I'm not objectively right. Very little of this came from some supreme being who told me in my sleep, this is the way it is, and therefore you should go you know, evangelize others. I'm just another human with a point of view. And so that's cool. That's liberating, actually. If people would embrace that, it's so liberating. And as we talk about superpowers, while this may not be something born to us as children, that ability, and maybe this is back to curiosity. It is. Taking all data, taking all comers. And willing to let go of my perspective. Yeah. If something else is better, and better I realize is a relative term too. Yeah. But if there's something that is more effective in this situation, I'm willing to shift and think about, you know, even in our political campaigns a few years ago, how we talked about flip-floppers. If you change your mind, you're a flip-flopper. Oh, my God. <laughs> Rather than if you're not learning, yeah. you're an idiot. Right. Yeah. You're, you're not. A, sorry, I shouldn't use the word idiot. But anyone who's not changing their point of view over time is not likely to be learning. But to your point about the tensions, it's funny. One of the fun things that we teach is just to ask leaders, okay, somebody comes to you with an idea and it's like 90% right. I mean, it's 90% right, but you think you could make it 10% better. I mean, you have an opinion about how to make it better. It's an opinion, but maybe it'd be better, maybe it wouldn't be better, but you, you, know, you have a perspective. What do you do? And you know, people say, well, I'd ask questions to have them see that you know, it could be better. Okay, so you would manipulate them, trying to get them to answer, please the teacher. That sounds frustrating. I would tell them my 10%. I mean, only a few get what, what I believe is the right answer here is go with 90%. They own it. The minute you put your fingers on it, you own it. And you've taken ownership away. And why are you taking ownership away? And what does that tell them? I mean, so this is the art and science of leadership, though. Because even if I'm well-intended, well, John, my intention is to help them and help them grow. with, And I want to give them my 10%. I'm like, yeah, let it go. Let all that go. Because that is not as valuable as their 100% ownership of it. And them feeling validated by that. And you're taking that away from them. And these are small opportunities, right? These are little moments mm -hmm. that leaders either excel or they, they slowly erode engagement. And they're not even aware of it. People leave because they don't like the manager. I'm a good manager. Well, yeah, you're good. You're good. You're not great. So people leave good managers. Bad managers are easy, right? They're harassing, they're, they're assaulting, they're doing all these things. Yeah, we, bad managers. But most managers are good. But you could be great. And that's the better version of yourself if you can embrace these superpowers and if you can slow yourself down a little bit and take the other person's perspective more. So how do you help people do that? How do you help people take a different perspective and not feel threatened or less than. And back to your example of somebody who said, I should have known that. Because I think we live in a culture that reinforces, yeah, you should have known that. First, you've got to get them, I think, you've got them to see their underlying belief system in some cases, right? What do you believe? What's your attitude? And then how do you behave? And what's the consequence of those behaviors? And then what would be a different belief system? What would you know, rather than fix the behavioral level, which is most training, right? Let's talk about behaviors, do this, don't do this, do this. But if I don't address the underlying belief system, for example, if I think that I know it all and that I've had your job and I know how people behave and I've been at this for a lot of years, then if I believe that, and that's my mindset, then I'm not really going to ask you a lot of questions. 
So you can teach me coaching and you can teach me the importance of asking questions to you. But if that belief system's there, my questions are going to be leading. My questions aren't going to be genuine curiosity. My questions are just to get to my point. So I've got to first tell you, hey, you believe you know it all. And why do you believe you know it all? So there's a lot of ways we do it. One is to say, hey, everybody, we all believe we know it all. Anybody know why we believe we know it all? Mm -hmm. And just that's the truth. We do. So let's have that conversation. And then people go, oh, I don't know why we know it all. Well, think about it. Why do we know it all? Why does it do for us? So you can get a group of adults to go, yeah, I guess we do think we know it all. Okay, great. <laughs> now that we've all agreed that we like to think we know it all, how does that impact developing other people? And they go, oh, probably we just want to tell them, yeah, that's why nobody wants your coaching. One of my fun things to do is they, I ask them high performers, what do your high performers say? They say, oh, they don't want our coaching. And I say, you know why they say that? And they'll be like, well, I don't know. Because they've seen your coaching with the low performers and the awful job you're doing, and they don't want any part of that. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not good at it. I think time and again, you can get adults there, but you've got to use humor. You've got to use respect. It's not right, wrong. It's you've got this belief system. This belief system is very human. This need is very human. This is the way you're getting it met. There's a better way to get that need met. So there's a better version of you. We're not going to fix bad, but good. I can move good to great. And what you're doing is good. I like starting with what you're doing is good rather than you're broken. Right. Nobody wants to hear that and be part of that. Mm -hmm. And they're not. I mean, they're objectively not broken. They're doing the best they can with what they got, with what they've seen, with what they know, with the way they're structured, right? With what society has constructed around them, the system itself, right? So it's not just the individuals. We don't want to fall into the false attribution bias where it's, it's your character that's at play here. No, you're operating within this ecosystem. And so let's talk about all that. I think you're more likely to get behavior change then and some serious reflection. You talk about behavior and mindset. And one of the things that we're passionate about and we got here through the conversations is mindsets and how they underpin behaviors. And so my colleague talked about, we can teach table manners equaling behavior. I can teach people which fork to use and sure. and that's great until we go someplace where they have different table manners. Yeah. Then my people are ill-equipped. They don't understand the nuance. They don't understand what underpins and they're going to be ineffective. Right. Yeah. There's that double loop learning, right? I mean, it's not just the skill or the behavior. It's what's underlying that and, and what really goes on from that perspective. But yeah, the good news is it's solvable. Most all the stuff is solvable. You need some, obviously, a willingness to embrace the idea. But I think if you approach people as fully functioning adults, you know, you're here, you got here, you're smart. We talk a lot about wisdom in the room. The answers to a lot of this are going to come from the room. I'll even get up in front of people and say, let's take a pharmaceutical sales company. I'll get a group of managers and say, how many pharmaceutical sales have I ever made? It's zero. <laughs> how many have you made? All right. So what does that tell you? First of all, it's a great country that I get to teach you something having not done it. But it does make the point that there's wisdom here. We've got like 100 years of experience in the room. We ought to tap into that. A little less from me and a little more from you. Now, I've got experience. I get to read stuff. I get to look stuff. I get to look at the research. I get to think about adult learning theory. But, you know, there's wisdom in the room that often gets overlooked, undervalued. Discounted. Yeah. I think the other thing that's the big crime is that most training that I've been to when I was growing up, I don't know if it's still the case, but it was designed for low performers or low to middle performers. We designed for middle to high performers. 
So we're very overt about this is designed for middle to high because that's where the growth is. That's where the potential is. You know, the low performers, yeah, they got to come along for the ride and I hope I can help them, but I'm targeting the pace, the challenge, the conversation at your middle people and getting them from good to great. But I think we often miss that. And that's why high performers don't go to training or they're told, well, you can go, but you can help out the facilitator. It's like, what? They can still learn. Why should they be denied learning? Because you've designed something not for them. Design something for them. Yeah, what a brilliant point. And I know periodically we'll get feedback from someone. This was hard to follow. Actually, this is leadership training. Yeah. It's supposed to be challenging. If it's not challenging, you're in the wrong room. There was a great participant and she said, I, I'm really having a problem with this. And I said, that's great. You're learning. It's uncomfortable. Look at you. And she admitted it. She was like, yeah, I think you're right. I'm like, no, this is how you know it's happening. If you're sitting here nodding at everything I'm saying, it's not necessarily a good thing, folks. <laughs> yeah. The design, the way you're taking information, if something's not working, yeah. we want to be a little bit of challenge, a little discomfort, right? That's how we grow. So, John, this has been just great fun learning about the five superpowers and how we deprogram or build back. I don't know if we just call it deprogramming what happened <laughs> as we grew into adulthood or that's what growing into adulthood looks like. And now we can take it on from the point of view of successful adults. Curiosity looks different. Right. Playfulness. I'm probably not going to pick up Legos, but our Imagine game on Sunday mornings is playful to us. Yeah, it's playful. Yeah, it's great. It's a great thing. And being authentic is where you want to be anyway, because you're unique and you're you and you should embrace you and the best version of you you can be. And being compassionate makes you feel good about yourself and helps another person along the way. So it's good stuff, right? If we can find our way back. And all of these make us better leaders. Yes. Yes. People want to work for you. They want to follow you wherever you go. They want to keep in touch with you after they leave. You know, that's when you know that you're doing something right. One of my kind of catchphrases is that leaders inspire people to follow. They don't do it by telling. They do it by encouraging people to want to do this. Yeah. Not manipulating. And then they lead to the other person's potential. They're constantly thinking this other person in a lot of ways is better than that person might see themselves. And they're giving them that opportunity to be better mm -hmm. where it's okay. You screwed that up, but that's okay. That, that's, you know, we're still in business. Things are, the lights are still on. Uh, I think that's the gift of cancer too. Like nothing's the end of the world. Once you've had cancer three times in your thirties and forties, we didn't get that invoice out. I'm really sorry. It's like, it's fine. So just what happened and what are you going to do differently? And good, you figured it out. So, you know, that helps people a lot when they, all of this, right, takes an environment, a culture where you're allowed to take risk, where you're allowed to make mistakes. So this, this one thing that's not covered in here, but underneath all of this is an environment where mistakes are allowed and embraced and learned from, right? And then forgotten. I like that they're forgotten. Oh, yeah. Remember two years ago when you, oh, Jesus, who wants to work for that guy? <laughs> yeah, we don't want that in our spouses and we don't want that in our bosses. No. Well, you're going to get it in one probably, but you don't have to have it in both. <laughs> and I'll leave that to you, Maureen, to decide which one's work. <laughs> so on that note. Well, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. John, where would people find you so they can learn more from your wisdom? The website is www.jmreidgroup.com. 
So that's the website. Uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, get a hold. You know, there's, there's contact us information on there. But yeah, we'd love to have a conversation with anybody who's interested in what I said and or things I haven't said or even a debate. If somebody wants to say, "Hey, you're wrong about this," that's fun too. <laughs> so, so we welcome all comers and uh, would love to continue the conversation with anybody who'd like to have one. And your book is the five lost superpowers: why we lose them and how we get them back. Exactly. And uh, again, it was Karina Chase, Andrew Reed, Lene Steinhagen. They're my co-authors and uh, their hand is in this as well. So they should be acknowledged. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this conversation and for doing your part to reconnect with those superpowers and make the biggest impact you can make in the world right now. Please like us, share us, and continue to show up, be authentic, and make an impact.